0: Good evening, if you've got your Bibles with you tonight, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. We'll read the first eight verses. and Then I'll read another verse and another portion after that. Hear God's word. Behold, my servant And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. And then, verse from John chapter 6, verse 40 For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on that last day. We are Gopal Mill Mountain. We can see all the mountains around Roanoke. There's a pile of mountains there. They're not very big, though. If you look at the Swiss Alps, those soar in grandeur, don't they? Then you have Mount Everest that really comes above those. Just think about that for a moment. As we come to the book of Isaiah tonight, some of the greatest and most vivid descriptions of Christ in all Scripture are contained remarkably in this book of Isaiah Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet because he has so much to say about the life and ministry and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we could actually call the book of Isaiah the Gospel according to Isaiah, For in many ways it speaks like the other Gospels do. It is written as though Isaiah was a witness to, of the Lord Jesus Christ like the other disciples, but yet was written under the inspiration 700 years before he came. It's important to note as we look at Isaiah 42 tonight that it is one of the four servant songs that are found in Isaiah. They are the Mount Everest of all the mountain peaks of Christ's prophecy. In chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53, these are servant songs, meaning they set forth prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ as the coming servant of Jehovah, and we see tonight we see Jesus tonight represented in this way in this passage as we will walk through this together. We are invited to hear the intra communications among the Godhead: God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father began speaking in chapter forty, and He's still is speaking here. He's now revealing to us His plan of salvation. God is going to paint for us an incredible portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the servant spoken of here. Our passage begins with these words, Behold my servant whom I uphold. The word behold has sometimes fallen off usage during the last several decades and has been replaced by the word look in contemporary things. And I'll probably use the word look primarily tonight. But we need to understand what we mean when we say to look. There's a sense of urgency of that word. Look, there's a bear in the backyard. Everybody will turn and see that, won't they? Look at that beautiful sunset. There's an urgency to look what they just saw. It means that you are to stop and give full attention to what comes after that word look. And see what's going on there. Look out. That car's coming down the wrong way. It's also a call to action forty some years ago, I was in a restaurant one night about twelve thirty. I looked and saw a house that was burning. I immediately got up and started running towards that house. I could see a man in, trapped in the bedroom. as I was getting up and again running out of that restaurant, I said, "Look, that house is on fire. Call the fire department." There's a call to action when we have the word "look," and when, when you hear the word "behold" in the scriptures, it's calling us to stop and focus on what's being said after that word. And then we have tonight: "Look, this is my servant, whom I uphold, in my soul, in whom my soul delights." I want you to allow me tonight to draw several things to your attention that will help you see the beauty of Christ in this portrait that God is going to paint for us. As He is the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Jehovah, I want you to see first of all, look, the Lord's servant is a selected servant. The Lord's servant is a selected servant. Look at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Obviously, the Father chose the Son for the role of redemption and salvation. The Son, in this sense, is not a volunteer. He did not initiate this, but rather it was the will of God having set His heart upon His own. He then chose the Lord Jesus Christ out from the Godhead. He did not choose the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, But instead, he chose the second member of the Godhead for this assigned role. The role of redemption. The role of salvation. So the father begins in verse 1 by underscoring how the son is a selected servant. He is the chosen of God for this task. In other words, look intently upon this servant. He draws our attention and it focuses us upon the Lord Jesus Christ throughout this passage. We are to focus our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to focus upon Him as we walk through this passage together. We are, have our hearts meditate upon Him. And we are to look full into the full face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is here is identified as the servant of Yahweh. He remains co-equal, co-eternal with the Father within the Trinity and yet the Father has assigned Him a work to do. And the Father has given Him a will for the Son to follow. Therefore, he's called the servant of the Lord. It is the work of salvation that would climax at the cross in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And throughout our Lord's ministry, He was very aware that there was this path that was set before him. It was the path that would take him all the way to Jerusalem. And he would set his face like a flint towards Calvary and towards Golgotha. And he would not be deterred from fulfilling his father's will. In John four thirty-four, it says, my food, this is Jesus speaking, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He is saying, I am so strengthened with every step like uh, taken moving forward to, in God's will. And it is the sustenance of my being. It is the very satisfaction and it is a, of my soul to, to do the will of God. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, not to do my own thing, not to operate on my own agenda, not for my own life, but to do the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And notice that he says that whom I uphold. Whom I uphold. You see, as Jesus humbled himself, the father exalted him. As Jesus lowered himself to the will of God, God the father undergirded him and raised him up and strengthened him. The more he humbled himself, the more God upheld him. A little application here for you. The more we humble ourselves before God, the more he will uphold us for me. We will work on our own strength. We don't have any strength from him. We deny that. We're like flying in our own strength, which is nothing. Let's continue to look. He said, hear my chosen one. The Father identified the Son as my chosen one to be the Savior of the world. This took place in eternity past when the Father designed the plan of salvation. He chose the Son to be the Savior of this plan in whom my soul delights. Why does the soul of the Father delight in the Son? Two reasons. First, because the Father chose Him for this assignment. So therefore, He has a very special place in the heart of the Father to be the Savior of the chosen ones, you and me. Second, because the Son willingly and gladly assumed this will of the Father and chose to obey it by coming into this world to become our Savior upon the cross. And oh, how the Father delights in His Son as He came into this world. If you will, the Father was proud of His Son because the Son moved forth in obedience to do the will and work of the Father who had given Him to do so. This is why when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, the heavens opened up and the voice from above said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Lord's servant is a strengthened servant. A strengthened servant. Continue to look at verse 1 as the Father says, I have put my spirit upon him. So great would be the work that the Father called the Son to do that the Son could not do it in his own strength now that he has assumed flesh and blood like you and me. The task was too daunting and the assignment was too great. The Son has become become flesh and blood in the the, the incarnation like you and me. Even He could not carry out the will of God in His own strength, not in His humiliation mode. And in order to faithfully execute the Father's will, even the Son had to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And 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 so we thus read, I have put My Spirit upon Him to empower Him, to energize Him, and enable Him with all that lay before Him to be able to carry out the plan of salvation all the way to the end at the cross. And oh, how our Lord was filled with the Spirit of God. Do you remember when He was baptized in the River Jordan how the Holy Spirit of God descended on Him at the the age of 30 as He inaugurated His public ministry? He could not step out into the public ministry and preach and teach and heal and proclaim and die except the Spirit of God be upon Him. In Luke 4.1, we read that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the river Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And when Jesus was tested 40 days and 40 nights, He was Spirit-filled, He was spirit-led into that ambush. ambush, ambush. He was spirit-enabled to resist the temptations and uh, and uh, spirit-enabled to bring forth just the right scripture to resist those temptations. In Luke 4, 14, after this, when Jesus returned to Galilee after the wilderness experienced in the power of the Spirit, later he went to Nazareth to to where he had been brought up. And it was his custom he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up and took the book of Isaiah that was handed to him. None rolling the scroll to the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. After reading this, he told the congregation, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Later on, he sent 70 out to preach the gospel. When they'd come back from their mission, we're told that Christ rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He was spirit led, he was spirit filled his entire ministry was under the dominating power of the Spirit of God that filled his humanity. If he, needed, if he needed the Spirit to do ministry, how much more do you and I need the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit just to get out of the bed in the mornings and begin that day living for the glory of God? In Isaiah eleven two, 2, we read, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, their spirit of counsel and might, their spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He was a selected servant, was he not? He was a strengthened servant, was he not? Now let us come to our third point. Look, the Lord's servant is a sovereign servant. A sovereign servant. Look there at verse 1 as we're given but a glimpse of the end of his work, projecting all the way into the future, he will bring forth justice to the nations. What a sovereign servant this is. What a paradox. What an irony. Here is just a glimpse of this servant's true majesty. So great is his empowerment by the Spirit that he will execute justice to the nations. Isaiah 9 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the host, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a sovereign servant this is. As he moves forward to do the will of his father with all the authority in heaven and on earth was given to him to accomplish this task. But there's more. In verse 2, I want you to see that not only he was a sovereign servant, but also, point number 4, look, the Lord's servant is a sensitive servant. Notice the extremes of this portrait that God is painting for us. The sovereign servant was so sensitive as he walked among us and as he ministered to the people in the, the daily flow of life. He conducted himself in verses 2 and 3. tells us it is a true servant with true humility and gentleness and a quiet spirit. Look at verse 2. He's referring to the servant of Yahweh. He will not raise his voice nor make it heard in the street. He would not be loud and coarse. He would not bully people. He would not intimidate people to get his way. He would not be argumentative or abrasive, he would not cut people off. He would not accomplish his ministry by throwing his weight around, but instead his demeanor would be quiet and submissive. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, I hear, for I am gentle and humble in heart. First Peter two twenty three it says When he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten he uttered no threats. No, he would not cry out or raise his voice. As he met people in the flow of life, he spoke to them with grace and compassion. There's only one group of people that Jesus played hardball with, and he did not mince words. It was with the hypocrisy of the leaders of Israel and their religiosity, really because they had been exposed to the truth and they should have known the truth, but because of their pride, and their arrogance, Jesus said to them, Woe unto you, Pharisees! Woe unto you, scribes! But for the woman called in adultery, he said, Woman, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. He would not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. There was such a winsomeness about him that he endeared himself to those who longed to be rid of sin. In verse 3, we read, a, a bruised reed he will not break. What does that mean? Well, a bruised reed is a picture of one who has been crushed by life, who's hurting on the inside, whose heart is bruised and wounded. It says, A bruised reed he will not break. He will not add insult to injury and pile on those like everyone else is taking their shots at. No, he would speak words of peace and comfort to them. Has he not been that way to your heart and soul? He's treated you very gently. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench or to extinguish. A dimly burning wick is one that the flame is all but extinguished. The flame is flickering as the wind is blowing and the flame is in danger of being completely snuffed out. And it is the picture of someone who has been met with the heavy blows of life. And there's only just a little flicker of hope that keeps them going and keeps them ticking. And they've suffered so much. And we've seen people like that here at Grace, haven't we? Been burdened, sufferings that we've seen. And the Lord reaves hope into such a person that dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will strengthen them, he will encourage them, and he will lift them up, and then he will build them up. What a sensitive servant we have. What an irony, this one who is so sensitive to the downtrodden, is so strong and sovereign to execute justice for the nations. Let's proceed to point number five. Look, the Lord's servant is a steadfast servant. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. In other words, he will not be disheartened or crushed in the task before him. Although he would be greatly opposed and railed against by bitter enemies, he would not be deterred from his mission here of salvation. And he would not be caught in the crossfire of others who would want to draw him into controversy, or to be embroiled with unnecessary arguments with religious leaders. He was here for a purpose and a reason. For the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. And despite all the opposition that was thrown in his path and all the discouragements that would have weighed our hearts down, it says, he will not be disheartened or discouraged and he will not be crushed. And in the face of all this rejection and opposition, he would not be deterred because he loves us so much to go all the way to the cross for us. He was his steadfast servant. And he would do this until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands coastlands wait expectantly for his law. Coastlands, you say, what's that? Picture a rural map. Can you spot the continent of North America in that map, what it looks like? How about South America? Australia? Africa? All of these pieces of land, they have the oceans running on both sides of them, around them someplace. That's the coastlands. But inside those coastlands, lands, are nations, all tongues, all tribes. And that's what he's going to do. So successful would his mission be that after his death, he faithfully commissioned His disciples to go into all the world and to preach the gospel of repentance and to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and to teach them all things that He had commanded them. And they would become extensions of Him on the other side of the cross. And the coastland, the coastlands will wait expectantly for that. They're waiting to hear the gospel. And it will be brought to them by the missionaries. It will be brought to them by the preachers and teachers of the word of God to bring this law to them. They're running for it and we need to take it to them. How steadfast is this servant? He would not be deterred in carrying out the mission that God had given him. It brings us to our sixth point here. Look, the Lord's servant is a saving servant. A saving servant. He would give his life for the salvation of many. And beginning at verse 5, we see the primary mission of this servant was to secure eternal salvation for all who will believe. And his ultimate act of servanthood was to be in his laying down his life for us at the cross. Look at verse 5. Thus God says, The Lord. This is an inner Trinitarian conversation between the first member second member and the third member of the Godhead God the Father will now speak to God the Son and we are privileged to hear that conversation that took place it says thus, God, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and searched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it and all of this was to simply underscore, just in case there's any misunderstanding on our part as to who it is who is speaking to the Son, and His progress and His right to choose His Son, and is now executing this plan of salvation. It is the God who has made the heavens and the earth, and in everything that is in it. It is this God, the one true God. And he says in verse six, and he says to his sons, this I am the Lord, this I is God the Father. I have called you, this you is God the Son. I have called you in righteousness, meaning that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. This will of God is holy and is pure and it is right. I have called you in righteousness. This is what the Father says to the Son. I have called you, and I have chosen you. I will also take you by the hand, and I will keep you. In other words, God the Father says, I'm sending you on a dangerous mission. I'm sending you into a world that is marred by radical depravity. I'm sending you into a world of religious hypocrisy where they have killed the prophets, and they've murdered all my messengers whom I've already sent to this world. They will take Daniel and throw him into the lion's den. They will take Isaiah and put him in a tree trunk and saw the trunk in half and sever his torso. They will take their prophets and they will kill the prophets and they will kill all my messengers. I now send you into this world, my ultimate ambassador. You will be my ultimate ambassador, my ultimate representative. But son... But, son, I will hold your hand and I will watch over you. At the the very beginning of our Lord's life in this jungle here upon this earth, the Father presided over the affairs of his life. And when Jesus was born, Herod said, I want every baby boy under two years to be slaughtered and masked. And so the Father spoke to Joseph in a dream and said, Gather up your son. Gather up your wife and flee to Egypt until I tell you when to come back. And that was the father holding the son's hand at the very outset of his life to protect him in this God-forsaken world. And when he stepped into his public ministry, he stepped into the crossfire of the religious leaders of Israel. We spoke earlier about the time Christ was in Nazareth in Luke 4 when he read from the book of Isaiah about being anointed to the Holy Spirit to preach liberty to the captives and to set the prisoners free. And then announced that this scripture had been fulfilled in their hearing. Do you know what occurred three verses after that? In Luke 4, verses 28 and 29, they were enraged with him and sought to lay hands on him to throw him off the cliff. And it says in the next verse, put passion through their midst He went away. One man against the mob scene, it was the father who held his son's hand and watched over him. We can give other examples of how the God the father held his hand. Jesus was bulletproof until that one appointed time on the Passover when he was to become himself a sacrificial lamb for his people. But it was the father who guarded him. It was the Father who guided him providentially and protected and watched over him the entirety of his life. I will hold your hand and I will keep you. What a love the Father has for his son. Look again at verse 6. It says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. I, God the Father, will give you, God the Son, as a covenant for the people. And in this decoration, which was spoken of in eternity past, before anything or anyone was created, when the plan of salvation and the plan of redemption was drawn up in the mind and the heart of God, the Father appointed the Son to be the covenant of the people and entrusted to His Son the elect, His elect, and gave Him this task of securing our salvation upon a bloody cross. Jesus became the mediator of the new covenant between God and a holy God and sinful man. And acting as our representative, he cut the deal with God with his own blood to purchase our salvation. When we take communion, we read these verses: for this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. It was the Father who gave the Son as a covenant for the people. And notice in verses 6 and 7, a light to the nations. And light here is referring to the truth of salvation, the message of the gospel, and the manifestation of the grace of God unto eternal life. And Jesus would be the mediator of these blessings of salvation that accrue to us. That is why you read in Ephesians chapter 1, every single blessing, every single blessing is in Christ, in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so as a light to the nation, this salvation to the dark world would come to the corners of the earth. And this message would be claimed by his servants to open the eyes that are blind, both physically and spiritually. Jesus did this, didn't he? You certainly remember in John chapter 9 when he took some spittle and put it in on the blind man's eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash this out. He opened his eyes physically, but there is a far greater miracle that God performs in this. It has given spiritual sight to those who have lived their lives in other darkness and know the truth of God to open their eyes, to allow them to see the truth and their need for this. This is what Jesus would do. Oh, what a servant. What a servant to carry out God's work, the Lord Jesus is. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, spiritually. If the sons shall shut you free, you shall be what? You shall be free indeed. And of course, that offended the Jews, didn't it? They didn't like that. It always offends religious hypocrisy. And they said to him, we're Abraham's offspring, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How do you say to us, you shall be free? They can only think in political terms. And Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain, if therefore the son shall set you, make you free. You shall be free indeed. This is the work of the servant to open spiritually blind eyes to liberate souls that have been captive by a personal devil chained to the kingdom of darkness. They They are the object of his abuse, of his torture, and of his torment. And the Son has come to save, to set free those who are in the slaves of sin. Finally, it says, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I believe this is speaking spiritually of those who live in spiritual darkness, who are ignorant of the truth, who are ignorant of their need for the gospel and who, not, and who do not know God. Jesus is the one who will lighten every person in this world who is to be enlightened, John 1, nine. And He rescued us from the domain of darkness in Colossians 1.13. And He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, whom there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. This is the servant of the Lord. How can we apply this to our lives tonight? I want you to look down at verse 10. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. This glorious Savior we just seen tonight, our hearts ought to be singing joyful because of who He is and what He's done and will do for us. Rejoice in Him. I would encourage you to meditate on this passage this week. Think back about what this speaks about Christ, this picture of Christ that we have here. And then I want you to pray that the gospel will invade the coastlands of all of the world, all those countries that are in there, that the gospel will invade those countries, the coastlands are yearning for the gospel. May we be faithful to take it to them. If you're not a believer here tonight, I want to encourage you that there's hope for you. If you're not a believer in Him, we read in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks, 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 looks on the Son and believe in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on that last nice day. You too can be saved, and you can enjoy being in Christ. Let us pray. Oh Father, we thank you for send, choosing your Son to be to, to fill out the plan of redemption, to come and give His life for us, and that He would not forsake us, but He would carry us all the way to the end. He will love us to the end. Pray for those here tonight who do not know you, that you, through the Holy Spirit, will bring them into saving faith tonight. Christ, then we pray.